John chapter 9, starting at verse 1. The controversy of the man born blind. John 9, verse 1. We'll read the whole chapter as one unit. And as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he should be born blind? Jesus answered, It was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was in order that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me as long as it is day. Night is coming when no man can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. When he had said this, he spat on the ground and made clay of the spittle and applied the clay to his eyes and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. And so he went away and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors, therefore, and those who previously saw him as a beggar were saying, Is not this the one who used to sit and beg? Others were saying, This is he. Still others were saying, No, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the one. Therefore, they were saying to him, How then were your eyes opened? He answered, The man who is called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went away and washed, and I received sight. And they said to him, Where is he? He said, I do not know. They brought to the Pharisees him who was formerly blind. Now, it was a Sabbath on the day when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. Again, therefore, the Pharisees also were asking him how he received his sight. And he said to them, He applied clay to my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Therefore, some of the Pharisees were saying, This man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. But others were saying, How can a man who is a sinner perform such signs. And there was a division among them. They said, therefore, to the blind man again, What do you say about him since he opened your eyes? And he said, He is a prophet. The Jews, therefore, did not believe it of him that he had been blind and had received sight, until they called the parents of the very one who had received his sight, and questioned them, saying, Is this your son, who you say was born blind? How does he now see? His parents answered them and said, We know that this is our son, and that he was born blind. But how he now sees, we do not know. Or who opened his eyes, we do not know. Ask him. He is of age. He shall speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess him to be Christ, he should be put out of the synagogue. For this reason, his parents said, He is of age. Ask him. So a second time they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He therefore answered, Whether he is a sinner I do not know. One thing I do know, that whereas I was blind, now 
I see. They said therefore to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I told you already, and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? You do not want to become his disciples too, do you? And they reviled him and said, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he is from. The man answered and said to them, Well, here is an amazing thing, that you do not know where he is from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is God-fearing and does his will, he hears him. Since the beginning of time, it has never been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered and said to him, You were born entirely in sins, and are you teaching us? And they put him out. Jesus heard that they had put him out, and finding him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered and said, And who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have both seen him, and he is the one who is talking with you. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. And Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may become blind. Those of the Pharisees who were with him heard these things and said to him, We are not blind too, are we? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no sin. But since you say, we see, your sin remains. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth of it. We thank you, Father, that we were once spiritually blind, but now we see. And we thank you that you have power to bring to life that which is death, uh, dead, that which is lifeless, that which is diseased. We thank you, Lord, that you have this great power. We pray, Lord, that we'll understand from this portion of Scripture more of this great power that you have and the desire you have to make spiritually blind people seeing not just merely healing their physical health, but most importantly, their spiritual health. May that be ours as well. We ask in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. This passage is about a controversy, a conflict, a dispute that arises because there was a man born blind, but then healed when he became of age. When he became an adult... He was healed of his blindness, which means that there were several years that passed when this incident occurred. That is from the time of his blindness at birth to the time of his healing. Some time had passed. This should not have been a controversy, but it became one. This should not have been a dispute, but it became one. There was a man who could not see with his physical eyes. And yet, the people who witness that, who hear the evidence for it, they refuse to appreciate it. 
Therefore, a controversy. Not only the physical part, but the spiritual part. The spiritual part, this same blind man, physically born blind, was also spiritually blind. We know until the end of the chapter that he didn't actually believe in Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior because he didn't know who that Jesus was. He knew the name of the man who healed him, Jesus. He knew that he was a prophet of God, sent from God because he healed him, but he didn't know that he was the Son of Man, that is, the Savior, the Lord Christ from heaven, the Messiah. He didn't know that part yet until the end of the chapter. He comes to believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. So he, his spiritual blindness becomes spiritual sight. The people who witnessed this, most of the people, or all the people mentioned in this chapter who witnessed this, they refused to appreciate both the physical and the spiritual. The physical did not lead them to inquire about the spiritual at all. Let's now see more about what happens. Verse 1, And as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. He passed by. Well, what happened in the previous chapter? He escaped the temple, and he's passing by another place in Jerusalem because it's near the Pool of Siloam, verse 7, which the Pool of Siloam was on the southwest side of the city of Jerusalem. So it's in Jerusalem. The temple is in Jerusalem. He escapes the temple. He's somewhere near this pool where he encounters this blind man and then heals him and sends the man to go to the pool and, and wash there to be healed. All right? So he passes by and he finds, while he's fleeing the threat of death, he comes to the aid of a man blind from birth and he goes to ministers to him. He goes to help him. This is the kind of generosity and um, unselfishness that was in our Lord Christ. A man is blind from birth, and he's ready and willing to help him. Verse 2, his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, his parents, uh, this man or his parents, that he should be born blind? The disciples ask this question, which is a common question, actually, We all, at one time or another, we wonder about our current condition and whether it has something to do with something prior to the way we are right now. Correct? And in this case, they're asking even from the very origin of the matter, that is from birth. Did this man sin in the womb so that he was born blind? Or did his parents sin and the punishment of the parents' sin whether father or mother or both, did the parents sin so that the child was born blind? This is their question. Another aspect to their question would be if they were hearing from Greek philosophers and Greek religion, such as Pythagoras. Pythagoras, we have his theorem in mathematics. He was also uh, a, a religionist, and he believed in the transmigration of the soul transmigration of the soul, which means we have a soul now in our human bodies, but upon death, that soul comes back into the world, into another human being, and people believe, both the ancient Greeks and even modern paganism, modern Hinduism, 
believes that not only is it possible for the soul of a human to re-enter into a new body with another birth into the world, but even degenerate and enter an animal, and even enter into trees and rocks. So they believe that the soul either descends into lower beings or ascends into higher beings. People have believed this in philosophy and religion throughout history. Even today, there are billions of people who believe in the transmigration of the soul. We often call it reincarnation. Reincarnation or transmigration. Perhaps even these disciples were hearing these thoughts and some of the Greeks, since the Greek culture was dominant in their time period, they may have heard that doctrine too. So whether the infant in the womb sinned or he sinned in a previous life, he's now entering the world blind. That's their question. Or the parents sinned. One or both of the parents sinned and he's entering the world blind. Jesus corrects that and he says in verse 3, Jesus answered, It was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was in order that the works of God might be displayed in him. Jesus refutes any of those possibilities. The parents' sin did not produce the blindness. That's one. Number two, the infant didn't sin in the womb to produce his blindness. Nor is he a transmigrated soul who sinned in a previous life. He's saying none of those have come about. Now, we do know the Bible teaches original sin. The Bible teaches original sin. Um, Just as through one man, sin entered into the world and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. Romans 5, 12. Psalm 51, 4. I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Psalm 51, 4. 1 Corinthians 15, 21 to 22. For by a man came death, so also by a man came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. Sin brings evil and death into the world. There's no doubt about that. The Bible teaches it. That's why we have chaos, cancer, misery, and we go from from cradle to coffin, from womb to tomb. That's why the world is the way it is, because of sin in the womb. I mean, from the beginning. So that's the nature of the world. So sin is in the world because of sin. There's no doubt. But the issue is whether always in the Bible a specific disease has occurred because of a specific sin of that individual. Does a specific disease always occur? That's the issue. Always occur because of a previous sin. And Jesus' answer is no. The glory of God. He doesn't expand on that answer, but he does say in this case, we're talking about the glory of God. He was born into the world blind, not because he sinned, not because his parents sinned, 
but for the glory of God. Which means that often it is the case that when there is a disease, an illness, it has nothing to do with the previous sin that we as individuals have committed. Often that that is the case. I'm using these words often or many times. I'm not using absolute terms. I'm not saying, we're not saying, the scripture does not say that a disease never happens because of a previous sin. The Bible doesn't teach that either. It doesn't say it never happens because of a previous sin. It just doesn't say it always happens because of a previous sin. If we want to see examples of sins actually causing a disease, let's look at a couple of examples. One example we find in Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13 The first example of two that a specific sin caused a disease. Acts chapter 13, verse 4. We'll read 4 to 12. 13, 4 to 12. So, being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. And when they reached Salamis, they began to proclaim the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they also had John as their helper. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they found a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet, whose name was Bar-Jesus, who was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence. This man summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas the magician, for thus his name is translated, was opposing them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also known as Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, fixed his gaze upon him and said, You who are full of all deceit and fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease to make crooked the straight ways of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you. And you will be blind and not see the sun for a time. And immediately a mist and a darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking those who would lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had happened, being amazed at the teaching of the Lord. Elymas, or this bar Jesus, Elymas, he was undermining the preaching of the gospel, Paul confronted him and struck him with blindness immediately. He was sinning against God and immediately punished by God for doing so. Another example, 1 Corinthians 11. 1 Corinthians 11. 11, 27. 1 Corinthians 11, 27. The Corinthians... They had certain controversies occur in their midst. And the apostle wrote this letter to rectify and resolve them. Verse 27 has to do with a controversy or a conflict, a problem that occurred when they were meeting together and partaking of their meals and the Lord's Supper. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-seven. 
Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself, if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and a number sleep. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we should not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord in order that we may not be condemned along with the world. They were partaking of the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner, verse 27. They were guilty, verse 27. They wouldn't examine themselves and repent. And when they don't do that, what happens in verse 30? Many among you are weak and sick, and a number sleep. Sleep, a metaphor for death. Some of them died. A number of them died. Weakness, sickness, and death. Because of their specific sin, partaking of the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. God judges sometimes that way. Sometimes, but not all the time. In the case, of, we'll also have two examples. One example is the Apostle Paul. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. The Apostle Paul received a vision. He was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words. 2 Corinthians 12, 4. He heard inexpressible words in paradise. Well, after that vision, after that experience, the following takes place. Verse 7. There's no sin, but verse 7 takes place. And because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan, to buffet me to keep me from exalting myself. Concerning this, I entreated the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said, and he has said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. This messenger of Satan, thorn in the flesh, buffeting, battering, bruising Paul, it was given to him to keep him from exalting himself. But it doesn't say, because I first exalted myself, I was very proud and boastful about this vision, therefore God punished me with this affliction, and then God said, I'm not going to ever remove it from you, even after you prayed about it. That's not the sequence of events. The sequence is he received the vision, but to prevent him from exalting himself, the Lord afflicted him to prevent it, to keep him humble, mindful, lowly of spirit that he should be dependent on the Lord. The Lord's power perfected in Paul's weakness. And then another example is the book of Job. Turn to the book of Job. Find the Psalms and go back one book. Job chapter 1. You know that many afflictions came on Job. Everything was going very well and swell for Job, right? 
Nothing, no problem whatsoever. He had health, he had wealth, he had family, he had many children, right? He had everything you could ask for. And likely he also had power and prestige in the community, in his own locality. He had everything one could ask for. But then, strife and turmoil, confusion, poverty, and death occurs to him, uh, to his family, and then even illness to him. Illness to him. That's chapters 1 and 2. All of that happened. But did all of that happen because of his sin or not? Let's establish that he had no sin that caused those specific afflictions in his life. No sin that caused those afflictions, the afflictions of chapters 1 and 2. Job 1, verse 1. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless, upright, fearing God, and turning away from evil. At the very start, the first verse of the book establishes by the Holy Spirit, the Scripture establishes that Job is blameless, upright, fearing God, and turning away from evil. That should be a description of all of us, right? That's very commendable. That's the way he lived. He was righteous that way. Now, not only does the Scripture like this in the Holy Spirit say this, but the Lord says this to Satan, who was later given permission to afflict Job with all of those miseries we just mentioned. Verse 8, Job 1, verse 8. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. It says, Job is not sinning. There's nothing going on wrong, right? Not that Job is doing something wrong, but God now says to Satan that he's about to give some power to afflict Job. God says to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? That is a commendable, honorable thing to be called. My servant Job. To be called God's servant, right? And... God tells Satan to his face, there's no one like him on the earth, on the whole earth. No one like him on the earth, a blameless, upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. We hear it there directly from the lips of God to the face and the ears of Satan. This is the way Job was. And yet all those problems happened to him, not because of his sin. Okay, so why was it happening in Job's case or in Paul's case or even in Jesus Christ's case, our Lord and Savior, who experienced weakness, not a disease, but weakness, right? He was hungry and thirsty at times, right? He needed to rest. He needed to sleep, correct? He experienced those kinds of weaknesses of the human condition. And then the weakness of death, he experienced it. Was it because of Jesus' sin? No, was it because of Job's sin? No. Was it because of Paul's sin? No. Not in these examples. But sometimes it's because of sin. Sometimes it's not. In our case, with this blind man, it is not. This is what charismatics fail to understand. Charismatics fail to understand these distinctions in Scripture 
and they make everything a matter of faith and that if you want what you want, it's just a matter of faith. Just say the word, announce it, pronounce it, and it's yours. Name it and claim it. Positive confession. If you just say it, it'll happen if you have enough faith. No, you may never be healed of your disease until death. It may never happen. It may never, you may never be a multimillionaire with a private jet. You may never have that. It, and that's okay. And that's okay. So health and wealth, though they are blessings of God, they are not guaranteed to every Christian as long as he says the word with faith. It doesn't work that way. Never, never did work that way. It doesn't work that way now. Not in the Old Covenant, not under the New Covenant. It doesn't work that way. It's for the glory of God. All things happen for the glory of God. Now back to John 9. John 9, verses 4 and 5. 9, 4 and 5. We must work the works of him who sent me as long as it is day. Night is coming when no man can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. In verses 4 and 5, not only does Christ describe himself as the light of the world, but while he's on the earth, he's speaking of his temporary earthly ministry, while he is in the world, he is the light of the world, in that sense. In his own responsibility, his own duty, while he was on the earth, in his incarnation. However, he ties it to us in verse 4, we must work the works of him who sent me. As long as it is day, night is coming when no man can work. While it's daytime, we who are attached to Christ, we who believe in Christ, we all have the same ministry of Christ. That is, to help preach the gospel. We must preach the gospel. As Jesus did, we must also do. That's what he means by these works. Not the first time in the book of John where he said this. John 4, 34. John 4, 34 to 38. They are all hungry. It's lunchtime and they're all hungry. Verse 34. Jesus said to them, John 4, 34. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields that they are white for harvest. Already he who reaps is receiving wages and is gathering fruit for life eternal. That he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this case, the saying is true. One sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. There too, he connects his work with our work. We are always about doing the work of the Lord in the daytime. The daytime is a figure of speech for this life because night will come when we can't labor. Remember earlier in our service, we read from Philippians 1, to remain on in the flesh will mean fruitful labor for me. Fruitful labor for me. Now we work and labor because it's daytime, figuratively speaking, a day is going to come when we die and we can't do the will of the Lord on the earth anymore. So while we're alive, whose will are we to accomplish? Our will 
or God's will? God's will. Because 1 John 2, 17, the one who does the will of God abides forever. The one who does the will of God abides forever. And also Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 5, 15 to 17. Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time, because the days are evil. So then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Ephesians 5, 15 to 17. Understanding what the will of the Lord is, is wisdom. Doing his will and understanding his will. Now the miracle, verses 6 Verses 6 and 7, the miracle. When he had said this, he spat on the ground and made clay of the spittle and applied the clay to his eyes and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. And so he went away and washed and came back seeing. This miracle is an odd and curious miracle, is it not? The man cannot see. And if you put mud from your saliva with the dirt of the ground and you create mud and you put, make it at some clay and you put it on the eyes, are you helping somebody see? Even if somebody had eyes that were able to see and you were to do that, he would have to close his eyes and he could not see, right? So in that sense, it's a curious and a strange thing to do. Why would he do, do that? Well, I think for a couple of reasons. One... Does this not remind us of God's creational work in creating the first man, Adam, from the ground, from the dust of the ground? So it reminds us of God's omnipotent power to create from the dirt, from the ground, and he made, he fashioned into the man from the dust of the ground. Genesis 2, 7. Genesis 2, 7, God made Adam from the ground and breathe into his nostrils the breath of life. So God's power to create also shows his power to recreate, correct? So if there is a deficiency in this man, his blindness, who is able to overcome that deficiency but God himself? The one who created is the one who can also recreate, right? Which is true not only physically but spiritually. And that happens spiritually to this blind man at the end of the chapter. He then sees spiritually. That's one reason. Another reason, I think, is to challenge this man to act in faith, to do something that's incredible, to do something that nobody would think of doing. Nobody would say to himself, okay, I want someone to create some spittle and apply it to my face, and then I'm going to be healed. We wouldn't think of that. We wouldn't invent that. So it created a certain obstacle for this blind man to overcome, to have enough desire, enough initiative, enough faith. We see that it is elementary faith at this point. It's not saving faith, but it is an element of faith. It's elementary at this point. But he had that, and he overcame it. This reminds us of 2 Kings chapter 5. 2 Kings 5, the whole chapter encompasses a man called Naaman, the Aramean. He was a commander of the foreign army, the Arameans. 
He came to Elisha the prophet in the land of Israel, and he was a leper. Elisha the prophet says, go and dip yourself in the Jordan. Go immerse yourself in the Jordan. And initially, Naaman, not, not the blind man here, but Naaman initially was offended. What? The Jordan River? This is this petty river. It's like a stream or a creek compared to the great rivers we have in, in Syria, in, in uh, the land of the Arameans. I could just go back to my home country and now we have great rivers there. You have no rivers over here in this land. It's nothing. So he was offended that he had to go to the Jordan. But his officials, his servants said, listen, if he told you to do some great thing, wouldn't you have done it? So he's just telling you to do something simple, so just go do it. And if you go do it, you'll be healed of your leprosy. So he went and did it. He overcame his initial objection, and he went, and he was healed of his leprosy. In the same way here, we have something odd, and the man has to overcome it. The man has to overcome this oddity in order to be healed. And then he does. Everybody looking at him would think he's a a strange man. He's weird. He doesn't know what he's doing. But Jesus then sends him to the pool of Siloam. Siloam translated means sent. Sent like commissioned or sent, discharged, sent, okay? So it means that. And why? Because the fountain from which this pool is made, it, is, it feeds, it sends water to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. So it's called sent. And so physically, it's sent water, sent into Jerusalem for the sake of the inhabitants to make use of it. Good water, right? So it's got that physical benefit. But even who was sent throughout this whole book giving life-giving water spiritually to everyone? Christ. He's been talking this way from chapter 4, chapter 7, he's been calling himself the living water, the water of life, springing up, will well up to eternal life. Both he and the Holy Spirit are identified as water. So, they should know this. They should know that this water of life comes from God. Whether to create or to recreate comes from God. The man does so in verse 7. Now the controversy. The controversy spreads, verses 8 and following. The neighbors, therefore, and those who previously saw him as a beggar were saying, is, this, is not this the one who used to sit and beg? The neighbors, which means that he was an inhabitant of Jerusalem, and the neighbors were also, and they knew the man. They knew his condition. They had witnessed him for many years. Enough years to know, yes, this was a blind man man. Others were saying, this is he. This is he. Some were saying, not only was he the beggar, now he is the seeing beggar, or this, the one who used to beg. Others were saying, no, he is like him. So they were trying to spin it. They're trying to throw shade on the miracle. No, 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 it's not the same man. They, he's just a clone. You know, it's just an identical twin or something like that. No, he doesn't look, uh, he's not the same man. He looks like that same man. But others contradicted that and said, uh, no, he said, I am the one. He heard all of the commotion. He heard the disputes. 
And he says, I am the one. He identified himself. Self-identification. Verse 10. Therefore they were saying to him, How then were your eyes opened? He answered, The man who was called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went away and washed and I received, my, and I received sight. And they said to him, Where is he? He said, I do not know. All true from the blind man now seeing. All true this interaction he has. The people ask him who, who it was that he says, Jesus. Jesus told him to go to Siloam and wash. He made clay and, and he went and washed. And he also does not know where Jesus is. Throughout this narrative, this man is being honest and truthful, forthright. But not the rest of the people. They're not being so. Verse 13. They brought to the Pharisees him who was formerly blind. Which means now we're either in council, among the leadership in the council room, council chamber, or a significant number of them have assembled to hear this controversy. There has been something going on with the crowds and they want to know, they want to get to the bottom of it. The Pharisees. The neighbors and those who knew the man bring him to the Pharisees. They want to settle the dispute. 14. Now it was a Sabbath on the day when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. There is the problem. There is the problem not in the sight of God. There is the problem in the sight of the unbelievers, in the sight of the critics, the skeptics, those who hate following the truth. That is where the problem resided. And why is it that they are to blame for this? Not Christ. That Christ would provoke them on the Sabbath day by doing what? By healing a blind man. Shouldn't they be happy about it? Shouldn't they celebrate? Shouldn't they praise God? Shouldn't they go and find Christ and thank Him for doing so? After all, it was not by the work of Satan. Satan is not in the business of preaching sound doctrine and performing miracles in harmony with the sound doctrine. Satan doesn't do that. Only God does, and the prophets of God, and Christ, the Christ of God. Only they do that. They should have known, didn't Jesus say so? In verse 4, we must work the works of Him. Verse 3, in order that the works of God might be displayed in Him. Jesus is doing the work of God on the Sabbath day. Therefore, it cannot be a sin. It should not arouse controversy. There should be no dispute about it. And who would bring up the matter as a dispute but unbelievers? That's why it's a problem. They didn't correctly understand Sabbath observance. Correct? Yes, the Sabbath is to worship God and to rest from our usual labors. Our usual labors and enjoyments we are to rest from those on the Sabbath. But there are exceptions to that. Exceptions in terms of works of necessity and mercy. Right? If God chooses to make an exception, who are we to confront God? 
The Pharisees are not merely confronting Christ, whom they disdained. They are confronting God, blaming God, when they should know better and they knew better. They did know. Luke 13. Luke 13. They have a dispute because Jesus healed this woman on the Sabbath. They, they dispute with Christ because he healed her on the Sabbath. Luke 13, 15. We pick it up at 13, 15 to 17. But the Lord answered and said, You hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the stall and lead him away to water him? And this woman, a daughter of Abraham as she is, whom Satan has bound for 18 long years, should she not have been released from this bond on the Sabbath day? And as he said this, all his opponents were being humiliated, and the entire multitude was rejoicing over all the glorious things being done by him. They knew that they needed to water their animals on the Sabbath. And this woman who had been bound and in, in, in her disease for 18 long years, shouldn't she be released as a sign and a symbol of the life to come when we will experience good health forever and ever, right? Isn't that the same with the blind man? Experiencing sight and good health forever and ever on the Sabbath, a sign of the world to come. When we worship God and rest on the Sabbath, it is a sign, a symbol, an illustration of all eternity for us. John 9, 15. John 9, 15. Now, in relation to the parents, the Pharisees and the parents... 9.15. Again, therefore, the Pharisees also were asking him how he received his sight. And he said to them, He applied clay to my eyes, and I wash, and I see. Therefore, some of the Pharisees were saying, This man is not from God, because he does not keep the Sabbath. But others were saying, How can a man who is a sinner perform such signs? And there was a division among them. There is now... The collection of evidence by the Pharisees, this part they're doing right. However, they're not acting based on what they hear. So they're going in the right direction partially, but not fully, because they're not acting on the basis of what they hear. At least some of them are not. Others of them are, because they're asking the question, how can a man who is a sinner perform such signs? If Jesus was from Satan, and therefore a sinner, why is he performing such good signs, good miracles, as he is? There's something amiss here. So one group is talking to another group. There is some faction, division among the Pharisees. They're not in agreement with each other. Some are saying, you can't break the Sabbath. He can't be from God because he's breaking the Sabbath. But they didn't understand the proper definition of Sabbath observance and what Jesus was doing in relation to the true meaning of the Sabbath, the others were saying, there's something more going on here. There's something more going on. How can a man who is a sinner perform such signs when only God would grant permission for that? If God is endorsing it, how could we dispute it? That's what they're wondering. So, 17, they said therefore to the blind man again, what do you say about him since he opened your eyes? And he said, he is a prophet. All right, so he agrees with some of the Pharisees that he can't be a sinner, an unrepentant sinner, 
contrary to the will of God. He has to be in agreement with the will of God because he's a prophet. He did something very good to me. 18. The Jews therefore did not believe it of him that he had been blind and had received sight until they called the parents of the very one who had received his sight and questioned them saying, is this your son who you say was born blind? Then now, uh, then how does he now see? They are collecting evidence from this man who's speaking with conviction and forthrightness, but they don't believe him. They don't believe the man. They don't believe the neighbors who brought the man to the Pharisees. Now they want to go to the parents, the two parents, and ask mother and father, is this your son? Was he born blind? 20. His parents answered them and said, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind. This is our son. He was born blind. We'll give this much to you. We'll give this much to you. We'll give this much to our son. This is our son, and he was born blind. We'll give this much to both groups, our son and to you Pharisees. 21. But how he now sees, we do not know. Or who opened his eyes, we do not know. This part is not true. It cannot be true. How in the world could all the neighbors know? How could all the neighbors know? Because it says in verse 11, The man who is called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, Right? He knew his name was Jesus. He tells the Pharisees in verse 17, He is a prophet. So at least the man, the blind man now seeing, says that he's, his name is Jesus and he is a prophet. How could his parents not know that? Certainly they must have known that. Why would the son not run first to his own parents before he runs and screams and shouts happily and skips and dances to all the neighbors, right? Some of them might have even witnessed the miracle occur. Correct? Certainly, he must have told his parents. So the parents now are riding the fence. The parents are now hedging. They are riding the fence. They say they don't know. Further, they deflect. They don't want to be interrogated anymore. Verse 21, Ask him, he is of age, he shall speak for himself. Ask him, he is of age, he shall speak for himself. He's not no he's not a little baby anymore. He's not even a five year old, a fickle five year old. He's not that anymore. He is of age. Ask him. Ask him. So what do they do? They don't want to own up to this miracle and identify with their own son their own son, that they could not enjoy the way normal parents enjoy their sons when they are babies, when they are children, small children. And even as an adult, because he's a beggar, which means that the parents, in a sense, have already disowned him. 
The parents have already disowned their own blind son. So it's not far-fetched for them to even do so even more now when he is healed and there is conflict with the Pharisees. They don't love their own son enough, their closest neighbor, right? Are we not supposed to love God as the greatest commandment and love your neighbor as yourself, the second greatest commandment? Who is our closest neighbor but those in our own family? If we're married, our spouse. If we have children, our children, right? And then from children to parents, parents to children. Those are our closest neighbors. And then it extends from there. They did not even love their own son enough to stand up for him. And why? 22 to 23, why? His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess him to be Christ, he should be put out of the synagogue. For this reason, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. They didn't want to be thrown out of the synagogue. Or today we would say thrown out of the church. They didn't want to be thrown out of the church. They didn't want to be thrown out of the synagogue. Therefore, they wouldn't speak the truth. They wouldn't do what's right. They wouldn't identify with their own flesh and blood, their own son. They knew that something great had happened to him from God. And yet, they didn't love God enough to cling to their son and then to inquire as to who this Jesus was, this Jesus of Nazareth, who is at least a prophet of God. Not a false prophet, but a prophet of God. And then to cling to God through that true knowledge. The son does eventually by the end of the chapter, but the parents don't. What do they want? They loved the approval of men rather than the approval of God. John 12, 43. They loved the approval of men rather than the approval of God. John 12, 43. James 4, 4. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. They chose rather the fear of man rather than the fear of God. John 10, 28. And do not fear those who kill the body, but afterwards are unable to kill the soul. But rather, fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. John, uh, Matthew 10, 28. 10, 28 in Matthew. Fear God because God can throw the soul and body in hell. The worst that people can do is put our physical body to death. That is bad, but it's not as bad as eternal punishment. In this case, they were just fearful of being thrown out or put out of the synagogue. So if they have less notoriety, if they have less money, if they have less food to eat, if they have less physical pleasures of life, less friends, what's the big deal? God still loves us. And then, among the true believers, the elect, you'll have many more friends, more solid friends than you had before. Right? You'll have more among the people of God 
than those who pretended to be the people of God. So, cling to God. The parents did not do so. The blind man did so. So what should we do? When God does something good, we shouldn't gripe and complain. We shouldn't be ungrateful. We should not pit one against another. We should not have contention and controversy. We should celebrate. Whether it's a physical blessing or a spiritual blessing. But especially when the spiritual blessing has occurred, we have to acknowledge it, appreciate it, and encourage it among ourselves. This is what we should do. Jesus was promoting this and showing and illustrating this by this healing miracle. When we do so, it creates more opportunities for the gospel, the salvation of souls, and the glory of God. Let's live for Him, not one another. Ultimately, we don't fear one another, we fear God. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.